The Satanic Image of Man When God created the heaven and the earth, he made man in his own image. Genesis 1, 1 1-27 Every revolt against God is a revolt against this fact. Man refuses to acknowledge God as creator, and he insists on denying that man is created in God's image. The argument of Satan was that man is not a creature of God, but a being in process of becoming God. God, in jealousy, seeks to prevent man from realizing himself. This self-realization Satan claimed to have, and his offer to Eve, was precisely an opportunity for mankind to recreate itself in a new image, an image divorced from God and based entirely on man's creative will. Like Sartre, a pale echo of the tempter, Satan stated that man has being, he is, but he has no essence, he has not yet created himself. This opportunity Satan provided, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3.5, if you revolt against God's law and become your own creators. Satan has rightly been called the ape of God. His plan is a parody of God's plan, and his standard is in essence an anti-standard, a negation, not a new creation. In rebellion against God, Satan decided to create his own heaven and earth out of the materials of God's creation. His program thus involved enlisting man as an ally, but an ally who would have to be remade in order to participate in Satan's plan of action. His approach to Adam and Eve was thus an acted proclamation, which in effect declared, I will remake man, in my own image I will remake him. History thus is the development and warfare of two contending concepts of man, two differing concepts of creation. The name of Satan gives an indication of his nature. The name Satan comes from a Hebrew root word, which means primarily obstruct, oppose, and is cognate to hostility or hatred. Satan is thus the obstructor, the accuser, the adversary. He is also called Belial and the worthless one, 2 Corinthians 6.15. He is also termed the tempter, Matthew 4.3, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, see also 1 Corinthians 7.5. The evil one. Matthew 13, 19, 1 John 5, 18. The accuser, Revelation 12, 10. The enemy, Matthew 13, 39, Luke 10, 19. The prince of demons, Matthew 9, 34, 12, 24, Mark 3, 22, and Luke eleven fifteen. The ruler of the world, John 12, 31 and 16, 11. And the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. Jesus called Satan Beelzebul on two occasions. Matthew 10.25, 12.24, and 27. See also Mark 3.22, Luke 11.15, 18, and 19. In Revelation, Satan is called the great dragon, the ancient serpent. Revelation 12.9, 20, 2-3, and 10. These and other terms all underscore the essential negation of Satan's role. This work of negation has as its goal, however, a new creation in Satan's image a new world order without God and with only a humanity made into gods. Strimple has described the new theology which undergirds much seminary training, which is the basis of ecumenicity, and which attempts to unite some Catholics, Protestants, Jews, and Marxists. What is this newly emerging ecumenical theology? Its background is the secular mood of contemporary man, a mood which Harvey Cox defines as the turning of man's attention from other worlds and towards this one. In turning our attention to this world, we are told, we see that it is a world which has come of age. It has reached maturity. It has cut God's apron strings, and it realizes that man himself can and must accomplish 
anything which is to be accomplished in this world. This is a theology of revolution, but the primary revolution is against God. The determination of history is in man's hands, not God's, according to this faith. God is so defined in this new theology that he disappears and man replaces him. As Strimple points out, someone might object, do we not often read in the literature of this new theology of hope, this theology of revolution, that the coming kingdom is the kingdom of God? Yes, we do. But we must understand what the word God means in the new theology. God is defined by Harvey Cox as the not yet. He supports the Marxist Ernest Bloch in affirming that either this full life to come may be called God, or man in achieving his potential in the future may be called God. This is a transcendence, which even the communist Roger Garrity can accept. There is something going beyond or transcending nature, history, and individual experience. It is the future. Saying that it is the kingdom of God, then, is simply saying that it is a society which is still future, but it is the job of the church to make it present. Jesus devoted his life to that task, we are told, and so must the church. The kingdom will be brought in, as the New Testament teaches us, by fire, by the cleansing flames of revolution, not by peace, but by the sword. Thus, the church's role in the new theology is to be the vanguard of the revolution, and its ministers, the revolutionary leaders or elite. Johannes Metz, Austrian Roman Catholic theologian, calls his a political theology and sees as its task to awaken in the areas of church and theology a responsible understanding for the significance of revolutionary violence under certain historical conditions. Violence in certain respects can be a disguise, a pseudonym for Christian love. This new theology of hope is potentially far more radical than the death of God ever was. It is, of course, a development of the death of God school of thought. Having proclaimed the death of God, it must now proclaim the death of man as God made him in order to realize the hope of man coming to birth as apostasy and revolution imagine him. The modern church, therefore, is doing far more than merely doubting certain aspects of scripture. Its problem is more than a weak faith or even no faith. It is a radically alien faith, an acceptance of the satanic plan as the blueprint for the new creation. This fact has major implications for the psychology of man. Fallen man is aggressively concerned with an ambitious program of remaking all things. This requires a steady assault on and capture of all men and institutions for this grand plan of establishing the independence of man from God and making man over again into the new God of being. We have seen the meaning of authentic humanity in the hands of the new theology. The British psychiatrist Lang uses the same terminology and states that we all live on the hope that authentic meeting between human beings can still occur. A man has become depersonalized and alienated, according to Lang. Independence is necessary for man not only from God, who is not even in the picture for Lang, but from society and from other men. In this context, psychotherapy must remain an obstinate attempt of two people to recover the wholeness of being human through the relationship between them. To be human means to be independent of God and man. It means cutting all ties with society in order to remake one's own self as a new God of being. Lang does not use the term God, but the meaning is clear. Schizophrenia can be used as the road to the new order. The two natures of the schizophrenic person are both impoverished the inner of substance, the outer of meaning because of their experiential drama. This experience can lead the person from a cosmic fetalization to an existential rebirth. 
What this means is that the reborn person is now lord and maker of his own being and his own universe. Lang can write, therefore, that madness need not be all breakdown. It may also be breakthrough. It is potentially liberation and renewal as well as enslavement and existential death. David Cooper, a disciple of R.D. Lang, believes that schizophrenics are the only sane people among us, apparently because they have rejected the logic of a God-given world. J.R. Coyne Jr., in his review of Cooper's The Death of the Family, summarizes its thesis. Society is sick, and to cure it we must first destroy it. The family is the smallest social unit, the microcosm, so we shall destroy the family first. How? Well, we go live in communes, revolutionary centers of consciousness, where we all become squirrely, where we'll each be able to masturbate in the full vision of the other. Conversion will be difficult among blue-collar and middle-class types, admits Cooper, but like all humane intellectuals, he has a solution. This is where bombs and machine guns will have to come in, with a guiding compassion. The most succinct summary of this book appears at the end, in a comment made to Cooper by a little girl. Heidi, age four, reports Cooper, after I had taught her the language of the trees, how to shake hands with them the right way, and then to hear their differential responses, how to hear the tree say hello, and how to overcome the silent withdrawal of certain other trees. I think you're just nuts. Precisely. The problem is, however, that Cooper takes it as a compliment, and there are a few too many Coopers among us these days. The purpose of Cooper and others like him who so radically defy the ordered rules of sanity is a very logical one. The preordained world of God's creation with all its standards, laws, and logic must be denied systematically in order to clear the ground for man's new creation. It is a step in the process of remaking man in man's imagined image. It is an aspect of Satan's plan to remake man in the image of his revolt. Sexuality is an aspect of God's creation. Male and female created he them, Genesis 1.27. This fact has a fixity about it which makes it a roadblock to man's desire to remake himself. The result is a profound hatred of sex and a desire to degrade, abuse, and destroy it by means of every perverse violation of God's law order. St. Paul declared that homosexuality in particular is a direct consequence of the denial of the truth of God, Romans 1.25. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Romans 1 26-27 J.B. Phillips rendered the latter part of verse 27 thus, Men with men performed these shameful horrors, receiving, of course, in their own personalities, the consequences of sexual perversity. Perversion has as a goal the debasement and destruction of sex. For this reason, the hermaphrodite has been important to anti-Christian and pagan mythologies as a symbol of overcoming any need for another person, as the undifferentiated life force in which all conflicts are resolved. The hermaphrodite was thus a symbol of perfection. The perfection is as an anti-god symbol, the hermaphrodite as a sign and symbol of chaos. According to a Japanese saying, one must create chaos to make a world. To overcome the fixity of sexuality, the rebellion of the 1960s and 1970s exalted the idea of unisex. In order to overcome God's order, revolutionary youth in its clothing and hair length strove earnestly to obliterate sexual distinctions. 
An earlier leader of the sexual revolution, Henry Miller, had called for racial amalgamation and universal human hermaphroditism as necessary before a new world order could come into being. Miller also called for chaos as a means to the new order. The goal of ungodly sexuality is chaos. Homosexuality, bestiality, and every other violation of God's law have as their purpose the destruction of order, God's order. Their pleasure is pleasure in obstruction and hostility, in destruction and perversion. In the hands of the ungodly, sex is thus a tool for defacing God's image in man and of attempting to remake man in Satan's projected image. God-given sexuality must thus be destroyed. The same is true of childbearing. Test-tube babies and clonal man are devices whereby the ungodly seek to remake man in this new image. Not surprisingly, the antinomian Christianity today is ready to believe that motherhood, at least as we now think of it, may be on the way out. The goal of these endeavors has been well summarized by the title of Albert Rosenfeld's book, The Second Genesis, The Coming Control of Life, 1969. The book deals with test tube and packaged babies, the programmed mind, humanoids, a sexless society, and much more. Clearly, while Satan's work is in essence negation, it is wrong to speak of evil as merely an absence of good. It is a positive force for destruction. It is active and aggressive. The plain meaning of the temptation in Eden, as well as the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, is that Satan is not content merely with the destruction of God's kingdom and of God's image in man, but also seeks to remake man in his own imagined image. Two active forces are thus at war. God through Christ is remaking man in his own image and is reestablishing man in dominion over the earth, whereas Satan is concerned with his own kingdom and city, and in recreating man in terms of his total denial of God and his sovereignty. Evil thus, while negation, is not merely an absence, but an active, aggressive force, trying by parody to ape God and play creator. This it cannot do, nor can it move a step apart from God's predestination and purpose. But in the providence of God, these forces are active, and they are the mainspring of political, educational, and also revolutionary activity in the modern age. They are now also basic to religious activity within the churches. The nature and psychology of man thus cannot be understood without a realization that man, created in the image of God, is now trying to abolish that creation and to institute a new and satanic creation. Sartre was cited earlier as an example of the philosophic denial that man is a creature. For Sartre, man is his own maker, as he seeks to free himself from everything except his own existence. As Molnar points out, for Sartre, evil is the refusal to choose freely, and through constantly renewed choice, to choose oneself as a free existent. Evil is then the fact that not everybody follows the example of Jean Genet, that we are not yet immersed together in objective totality. This freedom of man is to be beyond God, and beyond good and evil, which means beyond responsibility. Molnar states the case clearly. The conclusion Sartre reaches about morality and ideology may be now summarized as follows. There is no true morality, that is, knowledge of good and evil, in man's consciousness. Morality is the invention of those who are afraid of their amorality, their freedom. Those having reason to be afraid of freedom are the possessing classes whose economic interests favor the status quo. Therefore, they invent and impose a set of gimmicks, trucks, by which not only injustices are committed, but also a false consciousness is perpetuated. Unfortunately for such men, to be beyond God and beyond good and evil 
is also to be beyond life. They are programmed for death.